Welcome, friends. Thank you for returning to our Bible study again. We are beginning at chapter 7 of 1 Corinthians, and I think you'll find this a very interesting discussion because in chapter 7 we will be looking at uh, human sexuality in quite a bit of detail. We'll be looking at principles of marriage, and he'll be talking about uh, divorce. He'll be talking about being celibate. Uh, be a lot of interesting topics in chapter 7. It's a rather lengthy uh, chapter, and it is uh, the most extensive commentary that Paul makes on the institution of marriage and the appropriate boundaries for human sexuality. So I am going to be talking quite a bit about human sexuality. So you may want to be aware of that um, in case you play this in front of children or grandchildren. Uh, When we think about the topic of human sexuality, it seems as if the human species has had a tendency to bounce back between two extremes. And you're going to see and hear the Apostle Paul uh, uh, make a case for something in between, uh, vastly in between these two extremes. If you look back over the history of the way the human species has dealt with human sexuality, even within the life of the Christian community, uh, you'll see that there are two extremes. One extreme is just seeing human sexuality for only the purpose of procreation and almost to the extent that it's an evil thing, a bad thing in and of itself because it's so fleshly, it's so physical, Um, but it's just something that is necessary for the procreation of the race. Uh, I remember I had a professor in undergraduate school who uh, defined this uh, uh, at times classic expression of human sexuality that can be found in Christian circles this way. He said, um, if you've got to do it, do it, but for God's sake, don't enjoy it. Um, That was his humorous way of saying to us that it was almost the view among some Christians that it is necessary, it is essential for the procreation of the human race, Uh, but anything beyond that uh, was getting into the realm of, of sinful behavior. Uh, That's one extreme, uh, just seeing human sexuality for the purposes of creation and absolutely nothing else. And of course, the other extreme is the extreme that we're familiar with uh, in our world today. It's the extreme that Paul was being confronted with uh, when he was writing to the church at Corinth. It is the extreme that sees human sexuality not only for the purpose of procreation, but really for the purpose of of recreation. Just casual sexual relationships uh, for the purpose of pleasure, Um, but um, really just something recreational, nothing of significant spiritual import. Uh, Both of those are extremes. Both of those are extremes uh, that the Bible confronts and the Bible seeks to repudiate. So since we're getting into a, a fairly extensive conversation on uh, human sexuality and the bounds of human sexuality, let me just offer some summary statements uh, regarding the view that I think is the, is the biblical worldview returning, regarding human sexuality. Um, I think if you look at the book of Genesis, uh, it is obvious that uh, sex is good, sex brings life, sex reveals the, 
the beauty of gender differences between the sexes. Sexual activity provides unity and intimacy. Um, sex provides comfort and companionship. Uh, you can also see some of this in the Song of Songs. Uh, you see the companionship that human sexual activity can bring. And in the Song of Songs, you see a, a a poem there in the Old Testament that exalts human sexuality as a great gift that brings pleasure uh, to the human race. Uh, when you look um, in 1 Corinthians or you look in Ephesians and even a passage in Colossians from Paul, you see that sex is a very healthy thing and it reflects the exclusive, and it, it should reflect an exclusive covenantal love within marriage. Uh, and you even hear the Paul, you even hear Paul talking about uh, that marriage and the, the act of sex. You heard this in, in last week's chapter in 1 Corinthians, that um, the act of sex in, 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 in human relationships should be a celebration of the intimate nature between Jesus Christ and his bride, the church. So when you look at the scriptures, when you look at the Jewish faith and the Christian faith, um, you see a worldview that is very positive about human sexual activity, but uh, it is also very adamant that human sexuality is God's good gift, a good gift from a good God to the human race, but it ought to be um, expressed, it ought to be carried out within appropriate God-given boundaries. So that's probably enough of uh, just a summary about a biblical worldview concerning human sexual activity. So let's, let's look at the text. If you will turn in 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. In the first part of, of chapter 7, uh, particularly the, verse, the first seven verses of chapter 7, Paul is going to be laying some principles for the institution of marriage. And he's not, he's not going to really be saying anything that we could not have heard from other uh, people in the Jewish community and the Christian community of Paul's day. Um, so this is, this is very standard, uh, and it expresses the, the biblical worldview concerning human sexuality and the appropriate ways that human sexuality should be lived out in, in the human family. So let's look at verse 1, chapter 7, 1 Corinthians. And I hope to just perhaps get through verse 9 today. Um, verse 1, Paul says, Now in response to the matters you wrote about. So you see the transition here in 1 Corinthians. Up to this point, he's really been answering what he was hearing uh, about the church at Corinth from Chloe's people that were visiting from Corinth with Paul there in Ephesus. But here in chapter 7, Paul is going to begin to answer um, the letter that obviously he had received at some point uh, with questions from the Christian community in Corinth. We, we don't have that letter, which we did. I'm sure it had been a fascinating letter from the Christians there in first century Corinth uh, to Paul, the founder of their church. Um, so he's going to respond to what he, has, what, what he has heard from them through this letter. He starts by quoting, and most of us assume, again, just like we saw in chapter 6 of 1 Corinthians, that Paul is going to be quoting a slogan 
or a saying or something they wrote in the letter. So uh, you need to make sure when you read this next sentence, uh, the rest of verse 1, you don't understand it as something that Paul is saying. He's quoting something they have said because then he's going, to resp- resp- he's going to respond in the rest of the letter to answer what they're saying. So he says, now in response to the matters you wrote about, it is good for a man not to touch a woman. And what he means there is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. He's, he's, he's quoting a slogan. It is good for a man not to use a woman for sex. Evidently, some of the Christian community, uh, they were saying that, and they're saying it here to Paul. And uh, he's going to respond to that. He's going to disagree with that. Uh, Evidently, perhaps what some of the Christians thought they heard Paul say or thought they heard Paul teach was that somehow sex, sexual activity is wrong. Even Even in the institution of marriage, it's wrong. So they, they're beginning to say among themselves, it is good for a man not to use a woman for sex, not to touch a woman, is what he literally says here in the text. Um, there is absolutely nothing in the Jewish faith that would say that. Uh, the Jewish faith, the faith of Paul, was a faith that had a very healthy, very earthy concept regarding human sexuality. But it would have been easier for the Greco-Roman world uh, because of their philosophical bent, seeing uh, spirit as good and seeing the flesh and the body as bad, to think that once you come to Christ, perhaps you have to um, rise above all physical activity. So that may be one of the reasons that some of the Christians there in Corinth were saying to Paul, it is good for a man not to touch a woman or not to use a woman for sexual relationships. Uh, Paul is going to address that slogan from the church of Corinth, and of course he is going to respond negatively to to that understanding. So he's going to talk about uh, the proper use for uh, sexuality sexuality between a a male and a female. So look at verse 2. But because sexual immorality is so common, Paul says, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. So he's saying that um, sexual immorality is so common, and again, he's speaking to the Christians in Corinth, and as William Barclay said in his commentary decades ago, uh, Corinth was the most immoral city in the world in Paul's day. I remember all the temple prostitutes. It was a port city, cosmopolitan, metropolitan. So sexual morality was rampant in that city. Um, And that's what Paul's saying, because sexual immorality, and actually in the Greek, the word there is porneia, which we've talked about before, a, a general word, a broad word for sexual immorality. But here in this Greek text, the word porneia is in the plural. So he literally is saying something like, because sexual immoralities um, are so common. He, he's referring to the fact that there's uh, many many different types of sexual immorality known there in, in the city of Corinth uh, that were tempting uh, the, the people of Corinth, even the Christian community. And he says because sexual immorality was so accessible there in Corinth, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. 
So a couple things that I want you to notice here in verse 2. It's a man and a woman he's speaking of. He's saying that they should have. It really is an imperative in the Greek. Each man should have sexual relations with his own wife, and each woman should have sexual relations with her own husband. Uh, Something else you can see here in this text, uh, that well, well before this point, in Jewish Christian history, uh, polygamy, having multiple wives, had already been condemned and had gone out of fashion. So here in Paul's day, um, he's very clear that the standard is one man for one woman, and he will say later, for, for one lifetime. That is the standard. That is the Christian and the Jewish ideal regarding a marriage and the sexual relationships within marriage. But I do want you to hear that imperative should have sexual relations with his own wife, should have sexual relations with her own husband. Again, he's attacking this idea that somehow it's super spiritual to not have sexual relations. Uh, Again, back to the slogan that he quoted in verse 1. There were some Christians who thought they were so super spiritual uh, that they had somehow ascended above and beyond uh, the physicality of sexual relations. Paul is adamantly saying that's not the case. Uh, that, that you shouldn't, particularly in you shouldn't in the marriage covenant, uh, refrain from, abstain from sexual relationships. Paul is really almost given a commandment here for sexual relationships within the, the marriage relationship. So moving on to verse three. Um, I want you to notice um, what he's saying, and, and I hope that you can hear how countercultural that this definitely would have been in Paul's day. In verse 3, he says, A husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife, and likewise a wife to her husband. Uh, very countercultural. He's referring to the fact that the wife has a sexual. Uh, relationship, a sexual duty to her husband, but you also heard Paul say that um, the husband has a sexual duty, a marital duty to his wife, and he's talking about the concept of sex here. This would have been very countercultural in Paul's day, and I'm afraid for some people today. Uh, obviously, the the wife has a sexual duty to her husband, but Paul is saying that uh, the, the husband has sexual duty to his wife. Uh, no, no one person has more rights in this area in the marriage than the other. And he's going to continue on this theme of what we Christians call mutuality. Mutuality in, in the marriage relationship. Look at verse 4 as he continues with the theme of mutuality. He says, a wife does not have the right over her own body. But her husband does. In the same way, a husband does not have the right over his own body, but his wife does. So again, and this is picking up on the conversation that he ended with in chapter 6. We, we are not completely in control of our own bodies. We should not be completely in control of our own bodies. Um, our bodies are not ours to do with as we please. Uh, You remember back at the end of chapter 6, Paul saying that our bodies are a temple of the Holy Spirit. We've been bought with a price. So um, what we do with our bodies is not our choice. It's it's God's choice. 
uh, we're, we're under the lordship of Jesus Christ. So it's not just our personal right, our personal prerogative. And here he's even adding to that by saying um, a wife's body is not completely her body. A husband's body is not completely his body. Um, because the, the wife has rights to the husband's body, the husband has rights to the wife's body. Uh, again, that, that, that spirit of mutuality in a relationship, in the marital relationship, would have been very, very countercultural in uh, the Greco-Roman world of the first century. Um, in, in that society, the men had all the rights, not the women. So you see something here in the early Christian community uh, that would have been startling uh, to the world around the early Christian community. Um, and I'm, it's sad to say that there's been periods of Christian history, there's been segments of the Christian community uh, throughout our history that seems to have uh, never heard Paul say this. But you see this mutuality here, how... Um, we ought to submit to one another. Paul says that in several places in his letters. We ought to submit to one another. We should not just be focused on our rights or what we need. Uh, he's saying that here about the, the sexual relationship within marriage. Um, now, verse 5. Uh, this is an interesting um, section here. Uh, I had one professor in seminary who used to say that perhaps Paul was saying this tongue-in-cheek. Uh, he was almost with a smile on his face as he wrote this because um, he's talking about husbands and wives when they perhaps would abstain from sex in the marriage relationship. Notice what he says in verse 5. Do not deprive one another except. Now, the except here is perhaps what could be tongue-in-cheek, uh, but he's very serious at, at, at the hierarchy he's painting here. Again, he says, do not deprive one another. And he means sexually, do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to, and you may be shocked by the next word there, but it's prayer. Do not deprive one another, except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. So... Um, I can't imagine Paul would say that this should be a common occurrence. Uh, that's why it may be perhaps tongue-in-cheek, but certainly uh, praying together would be more important than having sexual activity together. But he says, do not deprive one another sexually, except when you agree. And again, notice the mutuality. Both have to agree when you agree for a time to devote yourself to prayer. Um, and Paul is saying here, if you do this, this should be the exception. It should not be common, and it should not be for a long period of time. Continue looking what he says in verse 5. He says, then come together again. Otherwise, Satan may tempt you because of your lack of self-control. So to get the whole context, let me read five, uh, verse 5 completely. Do not deprive one another except when you agree for a time to devote yourselves to prayer. Then come together again, otherwise Satan may tempt you be because of your lack of self-control. Uh, verse 6, he says this uh, as a concession. He says this as a concession, not as a command. Paul is saying this is his opinion. 
He's giving godly advice, but he's not necessarily uh, speaking the mind of God here. He says, if you want to abstain from sexual activity in marriage for a season of prayer, that's fine. But um, don't do it for long. Come back together quickly with your normal activity, your normal marriage activity and relationship. Uh, because if that, if that season of um, prayer extends and that season of, of not having normal sexual activity happens, then Satan could come in and tempt either one of the partners because of, of their lack of control. Um, so he's saying that um, this is just his opinion. He says, it's not, I'm giving you this not as a command, but as a concession. Verse 7, and this is interesting, and this gets us to some of the biography of the Apostle Paul. Verse 7 says, I wish that all people were as I am. But each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has that gift. Um, so what he's saying there is he's saying he wished all people were as he was. Uh, and we know that he is single at this point. Uh, he is celibate at this point in his life. Uh, most of us historically assume that Paul would have been married at some point in his life uh, for several reasons. Uh, the Jewish community is so adamant about the institution of marriage. Celibacy or not marrying would have been uh, an extreme exception in Paul's world. Uh, still is an exception, uh, a, a almost extreme exception in the Jewish world today. Um, so that's one of the reasons we assume Paul probably was married. We also say that because we know that we know that Paul we know that Paul was uh, a member of the Sanhedrin the ruling council in Jerusalem at some point. And we have other uh, historical evidence that being married was a requirement for the rabbis who were on the Sanhedrin in, in Jerusalem, and Paul was on that, that ruling body. So he probably was married at some point. He's not married now. We don't know if his wife died. Uh, perhaps she left him when he became Christian. When um, he became a Christian, entered on his uh, call as apostle to the Gentiles, uh, going to the world to proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. One of the reasons we think this may be the, the um, situation is Paul is going to have something to say about uh, what happens if a non-believing spouse leaves uh, later in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. So that might have been Paul's situation. Uh, his wife might have left. Uh, because of him embracing Christ and embracing his ministry as apostle. But we do know that he was married at, at one point in his life. Um, there's a reference in the book of Acts to, uh, to a nephew by marriage. So again, we know he was married at, at, at one point in his life, but he's not married now. And he is saying, I wish all of you were as I am. And he's saying single. Now, you need to understand a couple things about this. Paul has already made it clear that the married state is the normal estate. Um, the procreation of the race demands it. So the married state is the normal estate. Uh, but he is not married, and he's saying that is definitely a, an option. Uh, he actually calls that a gift. 
Uh, he's actually referring here, and this is rather countercultural. He's referring here to being single or being married, both as gifts, charismata in the Greek. They're both gifts. Some have the gift of marriage, some have the gift of singleness, and they're both gifts from God. Uh, Paul is pretty convinced at this point that the end of history is coming soon. So he's going to, that's going to influence some of what he says in chapter 7 when he says, for instance, whatever your situation is, whatever your state is in life right now, just maintain that for a while because the end is coming soon. By the time Ephesians is written, Paul is taking a longer view of history. He's taking a longer view of the activity of the church in history. And by the way, he's taking a longer view of marriage in Ephesians chapter 5. But here he um, is probably encouraging singleness and celibacy because there is a sense that um, um, being single may be less complicated in ministry uh, than being married. And of course, all my Roman Catholic um, priest friends tell me that's the case, that uh, they are not at least this is the situation today or the standing today, they don't require their clergy to be celibate or single um, as Roman Catholic priests because they say that's better than marriage. I think that probably was the history, but now they would say almost 100% that it's just better for the sake of their ministry. They're married to the bride of Christ. They can more completely give their lives uh, to ministry. And I think that's sort of what Paul's saying here. I think the early church probably misunderstood him, uh, particularly when they got to that point where they were requiring all of their clergy um, to, be, to be single, to be unmarried. And of course, when the Protestant Reformation came along in the 16th century, we, we were adamant in saying our, our clergy could marry. But we have a long history of requiring our clergy, um, our pastors, to, to not marry. And some of it may go back to this, the fact that Jesus was not married, the fact that Paul was not married. But if you look at the context here, Paul is, is saying this is an exception, this singleness. Uh, it's a gift, but it's an exceptional gift. Um, marriage is a gift, and marriage w will be the more common gift. We should see both as gifts. Again, we've not always functioned this way. Uh, I remember when I showed up in, in my first congregation as a single young man still in seminary, it seemed like it was a passion of many of those church members to try to find me a wife because it was just their uh, stereotype that their pastors in Protestant tradition should be married. We need to make sure that we see both marriage and singleness as gifts from God. And we need to make sure that we, we're all faithful to living out whatever gift God has given us. And that's what Paul is saying here in verse 7. I wish that all people were as I am, but each has his own gift from God. One person has this gift, another has, has that gift. Um, this is probably a good place to stop because here at the end of verse 7, we finish these first seven verses of 1 Corinthians 7 where Paul is talking about principles of marriage. In verse 8, he's going to start talking directly to unmarried people. Um, He's going to actually start talking about divorce 
soon. So he's going to start talking about some more specific situations uh, that have bearing on the institution of marriage. But it's probably a good place to stop here at verse 7 as Paul finishes speaking about these general principles. Let me say one last thing um, in in closing uh, our study today. Throughout chapter 7, Paul is talking about marriage and human sexuality. He's talking, he will be talking at points about the ideal that is put before us uh, from God concerning uh, what marriage should be. Uh, He's going to start talking about divorce at one point, and he's going to say divorce is never the ideal, it's never the goal, it's never what anybody wants. Uh, So we need to understand that uh, we're people of grace, we're people of love. When, when we think about what the Christian ideal is, or the Jewish or Christian ideal is um, for the human race, uh, we have to be quick to acknowledge that uh, we're also sinful people, and none of us ever completely meet the ideal, uh, regardless of what um, the spiritual goal is that's set before us. And that's why we have Jesus Christ and grace and redemption and mercy. And, and we need to show that same kind of grace and mercy to each other. Uh, sometimes in the body of Christ, particularly when it comes to sexuality, it seems that some sexual sins um, trump other sexual sins. And people like to pick and choose which ones they think are uh, the most grievous. We need to be very careful about that. Uh, As Paul says in Romans, we have all fallen short of the glory of God. Uh, So as we deal with particularly the ideal of marriage and human sexuality, um, we need to make sure that this doesn't become a, a weapon that we use in our hands to hurt other people. Because uh, this is clear teaching of the New Testament too, uh, that we we treat each other with love and grace and respect and mercy. So um, that's that's a good reminder as we continue talking about uh, marriage, and then we're going to get into divorce, and as throughout we'll be talking about uh, God's ideals concerning human sexuality. So I think um, you will find this whole chapter rather interesting, uh, and I look forward to uh, joining you again next week. God bless you.